Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is me. It's a solo episode. I'm my own guest. It's just me today on the microphone talking about stress. The topic today is stress, which is a massive, massive topic, a huge, wide-ranging concept. Today we're talking about stress. Like what is stress? Not the way that we talk about it colloquially, but like what actually is stress, the scientific definition of stress, chronic versus acute stress, talking about really fun stuff like allostatic load and cortisol and things that cause overtraining, what your training load and training stress actually means, and then ways that you can apply these concepts to your own training life. But before we get started, I just want to say a super quick thank you to everybody who has listened to any episode of this podcast. This is episode number 32, which is wild to think about. I did not intend to start a podcast when I started Running Explained. Believe it or not, the grand plan was a YouTube channel, which, holy crap, those things are, that was a quickly abandoned idea. (laughs) Those are so labor intensive to every vlogger out there. I don't know how you find the hours in the day. But thank you to all my listeners, to every single person who has shared an episode, who has um, given me feedback about something that they learned. I am so immensely grateful for you. The podcast is totally free. I do not have any ads or sponsors yet, (laughs) Uh, hopefully one day, but there is no cost to you to listen to this content. So if you do like it, if you do wanna support the podcast and help me out, I would be immensely grateful if you could subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform. If you'd leave a review or a rating, hopefully a good one, that would be preferable if you think it's good. Uh, And of course, keep listening, tell your friends. And uh, again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Enough about that. Let's talk about stress. The way that we talk about stress in our conversational daily lives is that stress tends to be a bad thing. You're super stressed out. You're really overwhelmed. You're going through a really stressful time right now. Oh God, I'm so stressed. Stress is bad. The way we think about it, stress equals bad. If you're experiencing stress, that must be a bad thing. However, there is a huge difference between the types of stress that we experience, the reasons we experience them, and whether they are acute or chronic stressors. So let's back up even further and actually talk about what the scientific definition of stress is. Stress or a stressor, a stress event, is anything that happens that then causes a stress response in you, in an organism, in a being, but we're talking about people, so in you. So a stressor is anything that causes the stress response in you. And there are, I mean... What isn't a stressor, (laughs) but in a good way or a bad way, like it's not necessarily a bad thing. The most important different kinds of stress we're going to differentiate between today uh, that really, this is what really matters. Whether it's chronic 
or acute. Because everybody's ability to deal with an overall level of stress, and we'll talk about this in more detail later, the concept of allostatic load, how much you can handle at any given time, basically, how much stress, is that when you experience a buildup of chronic stressors in your life, you are already at a much higher level of baseline stress than somebody who is not experiencing those same chronic stressors. Stress is in and of itself is not a bad thing. We talk about it is the dose that makes the poison. It is the exposure that causes the issue. Most stressors are not in and of themselves damaging, but the accumulation, the layering, the chronic stress that we tend to experience in our lives, that is what tends to accumulate, tends to become problematic as we accumulate more stressors and then find, you know, not very adaptive ways to deal with those stressors. And then we tend to make some life choices in some cases, which can add even more levels of chronic and or acute stress on top of it. And we're talk about all of that as we go on. First, let's talk about some really common causes of stress in your everyday life. Because as much as it would be lovely to have your training life be completely separate and not at all influenced by what's happening in your the rest of your life, that's just not how it works. You cannot train in a vacuum. What's happening to you the other 22, 23 hours of the day affects what you do when you run. It affects your ability to train the way that you want to train. So really common sources of stress in our everyday life come in a couple different varieties. You can have environmental stressors. So literally like the environment that you exist in, the temperature, the air quality, how bright it is, uh, how loud it is, how noisy it is. Whether you realize it or not, maybe you do because some of these environmental stressors can be very obviously stressful, but just raise your body's stress level. Your body is basically reacting to this outside event as a potential threat. Got to be aware of this one. I might have to do something or go somewhere, protect myself because this might be dangerous for me. So I have to adjust. This is kind of a modern day fight or flight, except it's not so big or so large a stressor as to be a fight or flight. It's just chronic and low level. And as those accumulate, they become an issue. Environmental stressors, your normal daily life stress events, waking up on time, um, losing your phone. Uh, When you do things like exercise, daily life stress events, usually those are acute as in short-term, time-bounded. You don't usually lose your phone which then causes chronic stress for weeks and weeks. Like you lost your phone, you were very briefly stressed about it, and then you found your phone and you're fine. You exercise, you are increasing your stress, your acute stress during that specific time. Hopefully, not not much longer. We'll talk about some reasons you might experience elevated stress as a result of either your training. But usually those daily life stress events, those tend to be more acute. If you're going through major life changes, birth, death, divorce, moving, any of those can be stressful. It depends on how long they go on. Again, the chronic is that long-term, tends to be low level. You can also have chronic high levels of stress, which is very bad when it comes from one source, 
workplace stressors, home life stressors, chemical stressors. Are you, do you drink a lot? Do you smoke? Uh, do you regularly ingest drugs that are not prescribed by a doctor? Or maybe they are prescribed by a doctor, but those can still cause stress on your body in some cases. The social and emotional pressures that we face just as being human beings who live in a social environment. Every single one of these things contributes in some way in its own small part to the stress that you feel on a regular basis. And some people have a really bizarrely high tolerance for this kind of stress. Some people are just able to withstand a lot of pressure and not in a, I'm holding it together and handling it, but I'm about to lose my mind kind of way. Some people just have naturally different abilities to tolerate different levels of stress in their body. That's just kind of how the cookie crumbles sometimes. We're all just a little bit different that way. And then of course, the stress that we experience and our ability to deal with it changes depending on what else is going on in our life. How chronic that stress has been. The longer term, the higher level that stress exists in your body, the more it kind of wears you down and wears out your ability to bounce back, to recover, to deal with that kind of stress. Chronic most things, it's not a great thing for your overall health and well-being. So when we talk about things that are chronic, things that are long-term, they don't tend to be presented in the best light. Like nobody said like, oh, I'm just chronically happy, right? Because things that are chronic tend to actually be detrimental to you in the long-term or at least not necessarily good. So everybody's ability to deal with different levels of stress in general is referred to as their allostatic load. This is basically the concept of how much quote unquote wear and tear your body can accumulate your stress, how much bandwidth you have to deal with all the crap that's going on in your life when it comes to stress and how that's balanced with your recovery abilities. So you might have situations in life where you are experiencing a lot of stress. However, you are also on the flip side, putting a lot of emphasis on the stress response, the recovery side, the rest side, the sleep, the nutrition, the stress management tools. So it's not just about how much overall stress you're experiencing it at any one time, but also how your ability to specifically deal with that stress is. If you're experiencing a lot of stress and you're also having trouble sleeping, your diet is really poor, um, you're not doing anything to actually manage stress from a, like a, you're not practicing any sort of calming rituals or meditation or anxiety reduction techniques, that's going to make your ability to deal with that stress level less, less resilient. You're going to become less able to deal with the higher stress load. All about that balance. So your allostatic load is your specific amount of stress at any given time. And we all have a threshold, a ceiling beyond which like we can't, it's too much, right? We all cannot just infinitely pile on stress, life stress, training stress. Like you can't just keep adding and adding and adding. You have to spend time recovering. You have to find the balance of what is Appropriate stress that promotes growth and adaptation versus inappropriate levels of stress, which actually break you down and make you weaker. Allostatic load concept is actually related to a uh, something called allostasis, which is a little bit different from homeostasis, 
which you've probably heard of homeostasis in your body. Think of it like uh, maintaining a steady state. Oh, if you're in homeostasis, you're kind of in, in balance, in a steady state. You're always trying to stay in tune within this really strict parameter. And the thing about homeostasis is that it tends to be reactive. So if my body's goal, and all of this happens like totally subconsciously for the most part, we're talking about like chemical reactions and things that are happening in your cells. If my body's goal is to maintain homeostasis, just to keep me alive, to keep the lights on, it's going to do a lot of things in reaction to the changing environment in which I exist. So if I walk outside and it's very, very hot, my body's reaction to that is to start sweating to maintain homeostasis in my body, to maintain all the things that need to happen in order to maintain the steady state in which my body is existing internally. That's an example of homeostasis and a reaction that your body has to maintain homeostasis. Allostasis is the concept that your body actually regulates itself by anticipating some things that are going to happen rather than reacting to things that have already occurred. And this is where the power of the brain just really never ceases to amaze me. Your brain is basically always a always calculating what the odds are that anything could happen and placing bets on what's most likely to happen next. And the more you create patterns of certain behavior, the better your brain gets at predicting or the more your brain's going to predict that that thing will happen. So you might see this in things like heat adaptation when you're running. One of the things that happens when we become heat adapted is that we actually start, not only does our blood plasma volume increase, we start sweating earlier, we sweat more. And as our bodies are primed, they're like, oh, I I know what's gonna happen next. We're about to go exercise in the 85 degree heat. I know know what's gonna happen next. I'm gonna just start sweating early. I'm gonna prepare, I'm gonna be ready. So allostasis is, is this concept that your body actually prepares in advance for things to happen. And which means in some cases that it like, it turns, it turns the system on. It gets you ready for something to happen just in case that thing happens. This is the very beginning of what the stress response is. Because if nothing else, we, our organisms, our whole thing is about becoming more efficient at what we're, whatever we're doing. And this is what running is all about too. When you're training, when you're going through your training cycle, when you're becoming a better runner, you're actually becoming a more efficient runner. All of this is about efficiency. All of this is about being as efficient as you possibly can be as a runner. Muscularly, musculoskeletally, from the cellular reactions that you have, enzymatically, neuromuscularly, neurologically, like all of these things. It's all about getting really good at doing the things you need to do really efficiently rather than necessarily creating any specific like, oh, when you get really strong at running, it's like, actually, you just get really good at running. It's an interesting concept. You think about your ultimate goal is always efficiency, not wasting any movement, not wasting any time, not wasting any substrates that you need to create specific chemical reactions. So efficiency is super key and your body is primed to try to be as efficient as possible wherever it can be. Uh, one of the ways that this is actually a little, little side note, your brain actually does this because your brain, not only is it trying to calculate 
what might happen because it's interesting, um, but also as a protective factor, but because it's lazy and it doesn't want to then have to go through the extra work of pivoting and adjusting to a situation it didn't predict was going to happen. But you've also probably noticed this when you are performing a behavior, doing a task that you've done a thousand times and you're kind of on autopilot and you realize like when you're driving home from work and you don't remember driving home from work, like you did it, you obviously drove home from work, but you weren't really paying attention. It just happened. That kind of muscle memory, if you will. And that's because your brain is constantly looking for shortcuts. What are called in psychology heuristics, basically these little shortcuts or rules or shorthand where it, it thinks about all the, all the things that have happened before. And it says, well, based on what I know, I'm assuming that this thing is going to be what happens next. And when you do things really consistently in a pattern, your brain just kind of goes into like energy saving mode. It doesn't really think about it too hard. Now, this is actually a really interesting energy saving technique because your brain consumes a vast quantity of energy. Like our brains consume a huge portion of energy that our bodies use compared to other organisms. Our brain power literally takes so much more power to power, to more energy, more food. So if you live in a scarcity society, you live in a situation where you are hunting and gathering your own food, learning to not have to constantly fuel your giant food hungry brain as much as possible is actually an evolutionary advantage. So your brain learns to become efficient in its own way, energy efficient by creating these heuristics for a variety of situations, these mental shortcuts, these rules, these kind of predictions and like, well, this typically tends to happen. This, this usually happens when this happens, this next thing usually happens. And then it just kind of goes into autopilot and doesn't really think about it too hard. In a lot of situations, this is super beneficial. Do you need to be super dialed in every single time that you drive home from work? I mean, you should pay attention to the road, but like, you know where you're going. You don't need to think about it the same way that you do when you are driving to a new friend's house for the very first time. Like it is a completely different way of operating. All this to say is that your brain... (laughs) Your brain is lazy. So when it's confronted with a stimulus, stimuli, a stressor, it it makes a prediction about what thinks is going to happen. And for a lot of these really low level, these chronic stressors that we experience, they're not life-threatening. Like our boss being a dick is not, not the same thing as an angry bear charging at us. But when we are... are primed a little bit for what might happen next because really at the end of the day we're organisms who are our goal is to survive that's our whole goal yes higher purpose higher thinking consciousness cognition yada yada the goal of our species we are alive beings our whole goal is to just stay alive until we can reproduce before we die your whole goal is to stay alive so when your brain is confronted with a possible stressor, it kind of like turn, flicks on the and just warm up the stress engine just a little bit and says like, do I need to be worried about this? And the problem is, is that not that not that, that occurs. That is an appropriate response to a minorly stressful situation. Whenever something happens and your body's like, hey, should I be worried about this? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a little, I'm gonna be ready in case something happens. The problem is, is that in a normal health, healthy, I'm going to say healthy, in a normal, healthy situation, 
you are presented with a stressor, you're, you react, you have a stress response, and then the stressor goes away and your body can basically stand down and recover physiologically, neurologically, biochemically from the stress event that happened in your body. Because a lot of stuff happens in your body when you become a little stressed. A lot of hormones are released, neurotransmitters, your, your um, nervous system does some interesting things about getting you ready for that fight or flight response versus being in that rest and digest, relax environment. So there are things that are energy intensive, labor intensive inside your body that are like prepping you for the stress event, prepping you to get ready to address the thing that might happen. But when the thing doesn't happen or the thing doesn't go away, and you're just kind of left in this chronically elevated, stressful state, that's the problem. That's the problem. It's not that the stressor, the stress events occur. It's that they don't go away. So when your body can't take the time it needs to recover from the stress response, that's when you get into trouble. And again, it's all about kind of the overall load, right? So, you know, it's, Everybody experiences some level of stress all the time anyways. It's just, unless you're, <laughs> I don't even know, you're always gonna be experiencing some small level of stress. Our bodies are really good at adapting and dealing with it. Most of these things are not an issue, but when you accumulate chronic low levels of stressors piled on top of each other, stressors that have no specific end date, the chronic nature of this is what becomes the issue. That's what starts to contribute to that feeling of, Hey, I feel chronically stressed. Hey, I'm developing problems. My resting heart rate is rising. I'm having trouble sleeping. I'm experiencing changes in appetite. I'm experiencing changes in my mood. I feel more irritable. I feel more anxious. I feel symptoms of depression or anhedonia, which is last loss of pleasure. I don't feel anything. I don't feel like I want to do anything, but I don't care. All of those things are huge red flags for a, a system on the edge of burnout. And I haven't even gotten to the part where we talk about running yet. <laughs> this is the environment in which you are trying to add on hours and hours and hours of incredibly intense exercise. Hopefully not too intense because easy running rules. But you're trying to add on top of all the other stuff that's going on in your life the baseline level of stress that you bring to the table, you are then adding in the training that you're doing. Now, obviously running can be an extraordinarily beneficial stress management tool. Absolutely, absolutely. I Exercise in general is fantastic. Running specifically, I think is wonderful for stress management. However, for many of us who have very race specific goals, what we're intentionally doing is stressing our bodies physically to force the stress response and the um, adaptation we receive from that recovery period after the stress has ended in order to become better runners, in order to become stronger, faster, more efficient at running specifically. So running is absolutely a great tool for stress management. However, when you're doing more than just running for your overall mental health and well-being, your overall level of fitness, when you're actually, for most people, doing something like, hey, I'm training for a specific race, I'm increasing my mileage specifically, I am training for a marathon, I'm training for an ultra, I am training to run 20 miles a week consistently for the first time in my life, 
that's going to be an additional layer of stress on top of the stuff that you already have going on in your daily life. So when we talk about the importance of being able to recover from the stress that you experience, this is why it's so important to consider not just the kind of training that you're doing, but how that overall training load fits together in like the grand design of your training, how the recovery fits into your training. Cause it's not about the, tr- the training itself is not what actually makes you a better runner. The running does not make you a better runner. It's your body's ability to recover from, learn from, adapt from what it just did that makes you a better runner. It blows people's minds when you say, you know, you actually don't become better when you run. You become better when you rest after you run. (laughs) So now let's talk specifically about cortisol. You have probably heard of cortisol. Cortisol is a hormone. It's often called the stress hormone because cortisol is a hormone specifically linked to your body's stress response to stressful events. When something happens and your body flicks on the burners to get ready to respond to the stress event, cortisol is released because cortisol uh, is actually really useful hormone in regulating the things that happen in your body in specific events. Cortisol is not, again, it's not a demon. It's not a bad thing. Cortisol is really important for your proper body functioning. It is the chronic elevation of cortisol that tends to become the problem. The presence of cortisol is not an issue. The chronically elevated presence of cortisol is the issue. And I've gotten some questions previously and recently. Really, I mean, these are fantastic, wonderful, well thought out questions about thinking about the relationship between cortisol and running and how cortisol behaves in our body. Because a lot of the information about cortisol currently, I feel in the news, has to do with cortisol stress and weight and your ability to regulate your weight. And it is true that cortisol does, um, you know what, let's let's just talk about how cortisol actually works, okay? Because this will be a better illustration of what we're, what I feel like the media and those kind of clickbaity articles, they're losing, everybody wants a really simple answer. Everybody wants to be told exactly, this causes that, do this, the end. And your body does not work like that. It is a lot more complicated than that. Cortisol is a hormone that is released by your adrenal glands and has intimately involved with the way that your body responds to stress. However, cortisol also exists in varying levels in your body throughout the day. Cortisol is going to be highest upon first waking so you're, if you're a, a normal rise in the morning, go to sleep at night person, your cortisol is going to be naturally higher, highest in the morning. And then slowly kind of decreases throughout the day until you end up with your lower levels, lowest levels at night, and then you fall asleep. Cortisol plays a really important role in regulating your blood sugar. It does some really cool things like it stimulates gluconeogenesis, which is the creation of glucose in your liver as instead of you ingesting glucose, you can actually, your body can use substrates to like lactate. If you listen to any of the other episodes talking about lactate threshold, you can, you can use lactate, you can use other things in your body to actually create glucose, which can then be used by your cells to create adenosine triphosphate, ATP, which is the energy currency that your cells use. Um, it also uh, suppresses insulin so that your body 
doesn't store excess glucose it act, it or store glucose in general. It keeps it f- flowing in your bloodstream. It keeps it readily available. Uh, so basically those things are primed to deliver as much energy to your cells as possible rather than having to like go grab the glucose out of cold storage in the back. Like it's just in your bloodstream. It's just ready to be delivered to your cells, to your muscle cells or wherever the cells need it most. It's readily available. That's a great thing to have when you're about to go for a run or engage in a really stressful, complex kind of, you know, I need to go in, create action. I need to go do something. I need to engage in that fight or flight response. Cortisol is specifically designed to prepare your body to best engage in that fight or flight response. It does things like interferes with uh, your body's ability to create inflammation. Again, this is a really beneficial thing to have in the short term. You have ever gotten seriously injured yourself and maybe not notice it right away. Like maybe you played a game of soccer on a broken foot and didn't quite realize it because your foot didn't swell up until later when it blew up to the size of an absolute balloon. That is part of cortisol. Cortisol reduced your body's ability to actually create inflammation, which is inflammation is actually a protective factor uh, in healing. Inflammation has a bunch of huge benefits. However, inflammation is not beneficial to you when you are currently trying to sprint away from the lion. No place for inflammation. That is a rest and digest kind of response. So cortisol does a lot of things that prepare your body to spring into action. Very, very beneficial in short-term environments, short-term situations where you need to do that kind of thing. Really not beneficial if it's always circulating in your bloodstream at higher levels, because not only does, you know, first of all, that kind of blood sugar regulation and, and keeping that much glucose in your bloodstream is not necessarily a great thing when you don't need it. Inhibiting your body's ability to create inflammation is not a great thing when you need the inflammation. Chronically elevated levels of cortisol actually also do some pretty nasty things when it's allowed to kind of just like run rampant over your body. Uh, One of the things that cortisol does is it impacts your body's immune system response. It specifically inhibits a lot of the ways that your white blood cells are created, proliferated around your body. Your part of what your body does is something called autophagy, where it basically like looks at something as like that wasn't supposed to happen. Let me just go ahead and munch on that and destroy it. Not only do your does your immune system uh, attack outside invaders, but it can also attack things in your body that shouldn't be there that your body may have created itself, like you know potentially cancerous cells, all these types of things. Cortisol suppressing your immune system that's that's obviously a bad thing. Cortisol is also catabolic. You may have heard of catabolism. You've probably heard of anabolic steroids, right? Like steroids, like Arnold Schwarzenegger took, huge pump up the volume, huge muscle building steroids. Anabolic refers to, just it means something that is is muscle building, that promotes muscle growth. It doesn't necessarily have to be a steroid, like anything that it creates um, or promotes muscle growth. And there are Things that exist in our body that are anabolic, states that we can be in that are anabolic states. Catabolism, catabolic is the opposite. When you're in a catabolic state, you're actually actively breaking down the tissues in your body. And that's not necessarily a bad thing when you break down, well, in in specific situations, if you're breaking down those tissues to release the energy stored in them and using that energy to then go do something. 
Catabolism is, it's a natural part of our, just how we operate. However, again, if you this allowed to run rampant, if your body is just constantly in a state of breaking down, breaking down, breaking down, that is very dangerous, obviously. Cortisol also reduces your ability to form bone, which is ultra important for runners. Runners need strong bones because we are out there pounding the pavement, pounding the ground on the trail. Running is a super high impact sport. And if your bones are not able to strengthen themselves properly, you are going to have a problem. You are going to develop serious injuries. You can develop something that is called a stress reaction that can develop into a stress fracture, which can actually develop into a straight up fracture. If you run on a stress fracture for long enough, you can actually just straight up break your bones. Having strong bones is super important. If cortisol breaks down your or inhibits your ability to form new bone tissue, that is also a problem. So clearly I have listed a bunch of things that cortisol, chronically elevated levels of cortisol can do in your body, which are very detrimental to your overall health, not even just like your training and performance, but your overall health. The problem where a lot of people get a little confused is that they're not understanding the difference between the chronic and the acute elevation of cortisol, and then how that fits into their the rest of their life. So some of the questions I specifically get about cortisol have to do with cortisol running and weight gain. As in, if running elevates cortisol and cortisol causes weight gain, will that mean that running causes weight gain? Which is no, <laughs> no, um, that's not quite how it works. That is one way of looking at the relationship between those things, but that is not uh, how the relationship works. It's true that running increases cortisol because running is a stressful event. Your body responds to the stress by elevating cortisol in that acute way, in a normal way, in a good way to deal with the stress of running. After you have finished your run, your cortisol levels should decrease And then you go into a period of recovery, rest and digest, repair, rebuild, get better, get stronger. However, if you go for a run with an already elevated level of cortisol, and then you finish your run and do things that make it so that your cortisol remains high, higher than it should, that's gonna be a problem. It's not the running. It's not the cortisol release with running necessarily. We'll talk a bit about situations where it might be in terms of intensity. It's the it's the elevation, the chronically elevated cortisol on either side of your run that's really going to be the problem. One of the things that really freaks your body out, more almost more than anything else, to be completely honest, is fear of starvation. Is calorie deficits, is fasted running, is going into a situation where it doesn't think it has enough fuel to do the thing it's being asked to do. So it freaks out. One of the things I said that um, cortisol does is it increases the availability of glucose in your bloodstream and also directly works to create more glucose in your liver through a process called gluconeogenesis. This is your body basically turning on the floodgates, going to the emergency storage um, of trying to get energy for your body to use. It is terrified of running out of energy. If 
You run out of energy, you die. But your body doesn't really understand the difference between going on a, on a fasted run and we might die. To your body, lack of energy availability means one thing. It means danger. And so danger means increased cortisol. If you go for a run in the morning when your cortisol is already naturally high and then you don't eat before you run and then you run, which <laughs> elevates your cortisol naturally, your cortisol, your baseline cortisol is going to be higher. Your baseline cortisol, because of the uh, no fuel pre-run, is going to be higher than it needs to be. Your cortisol is going to be higher than it should be on your run because your body's working harder than it needs to be because it's trying to create as much fuel as possible with the uh, in the highly stressed state that it's in. And then a lot of people make the mistake when they get home from their run, they don't eat anything after their run. So your body is freaking out and your cortisol is sky high. How are you supposed to rest and digest, regulate your blood sugar, grow new muscle, grow new bone, support your immune system if your body is freaking out like that? So when we talk about chronic elevated levels of cortisol, that's what we're concerned about. Running will elevate your cortisol in an acute situation. That's not the problem. The problem is how that fits into what your cortisol, what your overall stress levels are the rest of the time as well. Now, that's also to say that your cortisol doesn't just go up for the same on every run. Your body doesn't know distance and it doesn't know pace. Uh, It knows duration, it knows intensity, and it knows frequency. So your body's going to release more cortisol for activities that are more intense, that are more effort. If you are going out and running every single one of your runs too hard, whether that is marathon pace or faster, or you're actually going out and running as fast as you can on every single run that you do, you are unnecessarily, um, first of all, that's not how you become a better runner. Second of all, that is unnecessarily stressful on your body in a bunch of ways. Not the least because of the cortisol, which is also a problem. Going out that fast is going to be inherently more stressful on your muscles and your bones and your ligaments and your tendons. It's going to require more repair and recovery than an easy run is. And that's just not like I've, I've done episodes. Half the things I post are about the importance of easy running. And this is just another one, another example of them. Yes, hard, fast running has a place in your training. It absolutely does. However, easy running is, again, one of the most important things you can do because it allows you to stress your body in an appropriate way without overstressing it. So even if you go on a fasted, easy run, that's going to be more stressful on your body than a fed or a fueled easy run. And we're talking about fueling. And I've done some podcast interviews with some absolutely phenomenal sports dietitians. We're not talking about eating a Thanksgiving meal before you go for a run. We're talking about fueling appropriately, 15 to 30 grams of carbohydrate, simple carbs, just basically telling your body it's going to be okay. There's energy available. You don't have to freak out. And then of course, for runs over a certain length of time, typically over an hour, working on getting that in-run fuel, especially for those long runs. And then when you get home, eating a post-run meal or snack with that ratio Three to, one, three to one ratio of carbs to protein. Protein super important after a run. So we talk about the fear, you know, especially for, uh, I feel like especially for women, 
We talk about the fitness class culture, which is going super hard all the time, balls to the wall. How hard can, how high can you get your heart rate? How hard are you working? Push it, push it, push it, push it. Doing that kind of super high intensity exercise very frequently and not fueling yourself properly before, during, and after, that is actually what's going to influence your body's ability to regulate its composition. Not just talking about weight. And actually when people talk about weight gain, they're really talking about fat, additional adipose tissue, but also how much muscle mass your body is able to maintain and build and all the other things that go along with having an optimal body composition. All of these things are influenced by the intensity and type of training that you do and the level of cortisol that is that exists. How your baseline level of cortisol is interacting with your cortisol caused by the exercise. It all matters. It all matters. So that's that's cortisol. <laughs> that's cortisol and that's relationship between uh, how what how cortisol acts in your body and your ability to maintain change or uh, work with your body composition in ways that you might want to work on it. So if you think that more intense exercise is better and you should eat less while you're doing it, that is actually not the way to go about what you're trying to do. So how does this fit into your training? How are you? Okay, like this is interesting. I've learned a lot about stress. I have learned about cortisol. I've learned about allostatic load. But how does this apply to my marathon training cycle? Because <laughs> it's all stress, baby. It's all stress. Everything that you're doing, you are strategically, intentionally stressing your body in very specific ways with very specific desired outcomes. When you go on an easy run, your desired outcome is aerobic development and some probably muscle and bone and tendon strengthening. When you go and do a VO2 max workout, when you go and do a lactate threshold workout, when you go and do marathon goal pace miles, all of those different workouts, those different types of runs, whether it's a marathon, maybe you're training for a half marathon, maybe you're training for your very first 5K. The very different and specific kinds of runs you are being asked to do in the course of your training all serve the greater purpose of getting you to your race as ready for that specific event as possible. We are essentially... Training is just about biohacking our way to becoming good at that one thing that we're training for. And yeah, I mean, you become better a better runner overall when you do any of these things. But the different kinds of workouts that we're doing serve different purposes depending on the kind of event that we're training for. So I said before that your body doesn't know distance. It doesn't know pace. It knows duration. It knows intensity. It knows frequency. So when you're looking at your overall training calendar, your training load that you have, there are a couple of different ways to think about it. You can think about it in the duration of time it will take you to complete the training in front of you, whether you're following a time-based plan or one that is distance-based. You can think about the relative intensity, the intensity distribution of the kind of training that you're doing. If you're doing something like base building, specifically building up your mileage or kilometers for the very first time. If you're running a new longer event for the very first time, your intensity is probably going to be almost entirely easy because it's very hard to increase duration 
and intensity simultaneously. That is a lot to ask of your body. It's a lot of addition. That's a lot of stress. Talking about stress. But for many people, they're going to have a, a distribution of mostly easy with some hard intensity. So uh, easy intensity, moderate to hard intensity. Usually we talk about 80-20 split or thereabouts, depending on what you're training for. And we talk about frequency. How many days a week are you run? How many runs are you doing? What other kinds of activities do you do that are also physically active? So just because you're not running, but you're horseback riding or surfing or biking or doing yoga, those things count towards your training load. Those are also physical activities. It's not to say they don't have a place in your training. They totally might, but you can't ignore them just because they're not running. They still count. They still count towards your body's ability to repair, rest, adapt, recover. You know, walking the dog a couple miles every day, that counts. Super active job. Are you a teacher? Are you a server? Are you on your feet? Are you a delivery driver? Do you, are you in construction? Do you have a really active job? That counts too. That absolutely counts. The type of training, running specific training that you are able to do is also influenced by all the other things that are going on in your life. Not just like the normal life, quote unquote, life stress events, the normal life stressors, but the other stuff you do. Do you love to spend hours and hours a day in your garden? That's a physical activity. All these things add up. So your body, like I said, doesn't know distance. It doesn't know pace. It knows duration. It knows intensity. It knows frequency. So whether that comes from running or from gardening or from surfing or from your job, your body is going to look at the duration, experience the duration, experience the intensity and go, okay, now I have to adapt to what I've just experienced. And the cool thing is when we do this properly, when we properly periodize our training, which means that we carefully and strategically build in little increments on what we've done before while giving ourselves proper periods of rest and recovery in between each little cycle, we can actually develop, we can, we can raise our baseline ability to withstand training stress. So if you're a brand new runner coming off the couch, your baseline ability to handle training stress is going to be much, much lower than somebody who has been running for a couple decades at a much higher uh, volume. But doesn't mean to say you can't build up. It's just going to take time. So it's very useful, again, to not just look at how many miles a week you're running, but also just overall, how much, how many hours are you spending running? You can have two runners, one who's Average easy pace is eight minutes per mile. One whose average easy pace is 12 minutes per mile. If they both ran 50 miles a week, they're going to be spending vastly different periods of time on their feet. Because they're both in their easy zone, the intensity is the same for each. However, the duration is going to be very, very different. And that matters. That matters to your body. That matters to how much stress that your body can handle. And each individual's person, each individual person, each person's individual ability to handle specific training stress is also going to change depending on what else is going on in their life. And also you can have two people who look the same on paper, who have a different ability to withstand training stress. You can have people who have the same PRs, 
who train for it in vastly different ways because of their different ability to handle training stress. So all of these things, this is why there is no one size fits all. There's not even one size fits most when we're talking about, especially when we're getting into more complex training. Say, what's the best marathon training plan? The best marathon training plan is one that actually works specifically for, for you because there, what, what one person may find success with may really injure somebody else following the exact same plan, exact same intensity, exact same duration, exact same frequency. They have just, they have different abilities to tolerate specific training loads. The frequency thing is also important to mention. In general, it is better to run more than less. <laughs> uh, and by this, I mean, it is, first of all, imagine a scenario where somebody is training for five hours a week, four hours easy, one hour hard, classic 80-20 split, cool. But they're doing it all in one day. Wait, what? That's crazy. How would that be beneficial? Well, it's not. That's so if you again talking about frequency, that's a that's a really appropriate amount of training. Five hours, you know, five hours total, four hours easy, one hour hard. Cool. Over in one day for the week. No, 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 no. That's crazy. That frequency is way imbalanced. It would be much more appropriate to balance that training out over something like four to maybe six days of running because that's going to be a lot less stressful overall in your body. The duration and the intensity is the same for that week. The frequency distribution is makes it a vastly different kind of training load, training stress. So all of this to say is that your the training load that any specific person can handle, the training stress that one person can sustain and tolerate and grow and adapt from is really individualized. And it depends so much on your personal history, what your specific goals are, the kind of work you're trying to do, how often you're running, how much you're running, the intensity that you're running, the other stuff you're doing in addition to your running, not just the supplemental activities like strength training and mobility work, but the other fun stuff you tend to do in your life as well. All of that contributes to your body's ability to recover and adapt from and grow from the training that you're doing. Because when you don't let yourself recover or you're doing more hard work than you can recover from, you find yourself in overtraining territory, what's commonly called burnout. Overtraining is nasty. Overtraining exists on a spectrum and overtraining is really, is really the end result of when you push things too far without allowing yourself to recover, or you continually push things too far uh, and you you can't recover from them. So overtraining, I like to think of it, uh, it starts with normal fatigue, normal training fatigue, normal what I, we call cumulative fatigue. When you're going through a hard training cycle, when you're asking a lot of your body, you're going through mileage building or race-specific training, you're going to probably experience what's called cumulative fatigue. This is the accumulation of the fatigue in your body that is you're working hard, but you're able to recover and you're finding the balance. You're probably sleeping a little bit more. You're probably eating a little bit more, but your resting heart rate is in the normal range. You are able to hit your paces in your workouts and you're racing well and your mood is pretty stable. No weird changes there. 
Your easy pace might be a little really, really easy because you're tired, but like you're working hard, but you're handling it. That's cumulative fatigue. That is normal training fatigue. That is your body experiencing stress and adapting to and recovering from that stress in a way that is healthy and sustainable. Like you got this. I got this. I'm recovering. I'm working hard, but I'm in balance. The next step is something called functional overreaching. Functional overreaching is a concept where you intentionally kind of like ultra stretch, like you do really intense training, short term time bounded, intentional periods of fairly demanding training with the expectation that you are going to do what you're going to super compensate. So during a normal training, you would then you have your stress and then your body learns to compensate and grow, adapt, change, repair, do the thing during a period of functional overreaching after the period of functional overreaching is over, you then follow it up with a period of that recovery reduced intensity uh, that you need to do what's called that super compensation. So it's like, like at high risk, high reward kind of training. This is still a part of many normal training cycles. This is usually what's referred to as peak week in some um, distance running training plans. It's your usually your highest mileage, highest volume week of the entire plan. And it usually is the last week of training you do before you head into your taper, which is that period of recovery, that super compensation that allows you to do this really, really hard work and then taper down into rest day and be ready and rested and uh, ready to go on race day. That's functional overreaching. You might be really tired. You might be sleeping really hard. Uh, you can, you might be going really easy on your easy runs, but in general, you're still like, you're, you're at the edge, but you're still holding on. You're still eating. Okay. Your heart rate's still in the right place. Um, you're just pretty tired. And then you rest afterwards or, you know, recover reduced intensity. That's functional overreaching. The step beyond that is what's called non-functional overreaching. And this is when you either functionally overreach for too long or you don't recover properly afterwards. So if you were to, uh, this actually happens more than you'd think, especially in this past year or so with all the race delays and um, cancellations. Let's say you are training for an event and you are going through or you ha- your race date changes and it gets, it gets extended, it gets moved. Like let's say it gets canceled and you decide, okay, you know, I'm gonna run a race that's two weeks after my originally scheduled race. Okay, so now I have these two extra weeks of training uh, that I need to do to get ready for my race. Um, how about I just repeat that uh, that last week before my taper a couple times? <laughs> no, so you're so that that would be an example of what I would consider dangerous um, non-functional overreaching. So the whole point about overreaching is that it's pre- fairly t- pretty short. Uh, a, a fairly short and I would say supervised by a training uh, coach, a running coach, a training professional who has intentionally made it that functional overreaching period the way that it is and followed it up by rest. If you take what's supposed to be a period of functional overreaching, your peak week, and you repeat it a couple times without any rest in between, that's going to be a real problem. That is going to be actually, if not even 
non-functional overreaching might dip that might put you into overtraining territory. Non-functional overreaching, there are no performance benefits for non-functional overreaching. Non-functional overreaching, you start to see things like mood changes, lack of motivation, anxiety, anhedonia, loss, you don't stop caring. Um, you might feel symptoms of depression, worthlessness, hopelessness. You might um, see changes in your appetite, very, very hungry all the time or craving weird things or not hungry at all. You are going to see changes in your resting heart rate. You are going to see changes in your perceived effort and heart rate on your runs. Your easy run is going to feel really, really hard. You're uh, not going to be able to hit your paces in your workouts, or if you are, the effort level is way higher than it should be. That's non-functional overreaching. And the only way to recover from non-functional overreaching is to take a serious period of rest and recovery. It might just be a couple weeks, but once you have recovered from it, like there's no performance benefit. Like you just stressed your body too much. That is too much stress, non-functional overreaching. And then overtraining is the very, very end of this. And actually overtraining, I, there are some like endocrinological um, implications for overtraining. It's a, it's a fairly nasty, serious syndrome with far-reaching implications for your overall health and wellness. Um, it, and the really the only way to recover from actual overtraining syndrome is to take some real time off. So we're talking months months of, of time off because that's the only way to allow your body to return to normal. You have, you would have stressed your body so hard without letting it recover that you are being going to be forced to take months off in order to kind of reset yourself and recover. Because this is all stress-based. This is all about stress. This is not about miles. This is not about pace. This is not about any one race. Any person, any person can push themselves too hard at any level, depending on where they are. You do not need to run 80 miles a week to go into overtraining territory. You can overtrain yourself on 15 miles a week. If that's more than your body can handle, that's the only thing that matters. So if you're experiencing symptoms of functional over, non-functional overreaching or overtraining, that's really serious. You can be running at any volume intensity. That's going to be a problem. The other kind of caveat to this is that there is also the intensity factor. You are going to be, it's going to be much more likely that you are in danger of non-functional overreaching or overtraining. If you continually train at super high intensity, that's why easy running is so important because continually stressing your body at that high intensity for miles and miles and miles every single week is way too much for your body to handle. Not only just from a normal stress response, but from the damage, the mic normal micro damage that it causes to your muscles, bones, ligaments, tendons, you need to do most of your running at your easy effort, truly easy effort zone, 75% and below of your maximum heart rate. It is slow. It is slower than you've ever run before, but it's actually what makes you a better runner. So anyways, that's overtraining in a nutshell. So quantifying all of this can be hard to do because we... We don't want to get into a place where we look back and say, oh, gee, I really wish I'd seen that coming. When I look back now, it's so obvious. So there are a couple things that you can do to be mindful of the training load and training stress and just the overall life stress that you have. So one, obviously, we all have stress in our lives, of course, of course, of course. However, Doing things that you can do, taking steps to mitigate the most serious 
sources of that chronic low-level stress, if you can, this is really important. And maybe it is something like practicing mindfulness or meditation or anxiety reduction techniques. Maybe it's talking to a therapist. Maybe it is whatever the thing is, whatever the source of stress is. Maybe it's switching jobs or cutting out that toxic person from your life or I don't know, whatever it is. Chronic low-level stress really, really, really sucks. And I understand that there are many situations, like nobody wants to be under chronic stress. Nobody is going to be like, oh, gee, why didn't you just tell me that I should probably leave this incredibly stressful environment? I'd never thought of that. Of course you have. I'm not saying that. I understand that. But doing the things we do have control over to mitigate our stress levels, that is also very important. And then, of course, doing the things that we do have a lot of control over, understanding the kind of training that we're doing doing most of those miles easy, not doing more than our body can handle, not increasing our training load too fast, not doing too much too quickly. Because beyond the whole like overtraining, the endocrinological, endocrinal, whatever, your endocrine system, beyond the implications of your general health is that uh, you're going to get injured. When you are overstressing your body, when you're not allowing yourself to recover, you are so much more likely to get injured. Bone injuries, muscle injuries, tendon injuries, just injuries, just injuries happen. You are so much more likely to get injured by doing the classic mistake of doing too much too quickly, by adding too much duration, too much intensity, too much frequency, faster than your body is able to adjust and adapt to. That is like the number one rule, the number one cause of running injuries and issues is loading on more too fast, faster than your body can reasonably adjust and handle. That's a huge one. So absolutely track your distance, track your weekly volume, track the pace and intensity that you run in, make note of that in your training log. And then if you want, you can also quantify that using formulas. Like if you just want to calculate in your own training log, kind of Um, how I typically do it is by intensity minutes. So what I do is on a scale of one to 10, the intensity effort of the run. And then I multiply that by the number of minutes the run was. And that's, that's the intensity score for that run. And then I have a weekly running total of that intensity score. So I can look week to week and see if there are any big changes week to week. Like, wow, why am I so tired this week? Oh, last week I had an intensity score of X. So Um, That takes a little bit of fine tuning in terms of figuring out exactly how you are able to uh, quantify your effort on a scale of one to 10. If you are a new runner, I would not necessarily suggest this because everything might feel really hard. So there are other ways you can also quantify training stress in some apps. I know Strava has their whatever, whatever training stress or training score. Um, Stride, the power meter foot pod, Stride has a way to track your, um, training stress over periods of time. There are ways to quantify this. And then looking back at historical data, understanding what's normal for you, not just distance, not just pace. Look at time you spent on your feet. Look at your resting heart rate. Look at your average heart rate. Look at that training stress score. Uh, look at that training load, the, what, however you assign that number. So that's all really important and ways to quantify the kind of training that you're doing. And then some of the other metrics we can use to kind of keep track of our baseline numbers are that resting heart rate. Resting heart rate is an incredibly useful metric. 
measure it first thing in the morning. If you wear um, a sport watch, fitness watch, Garmin, Apple watch, whatever it is, first thing in the morning, roll over, just check what your resting heart rate is. Boom, note it down, keep track. See what the normal range is for you. Resting heart rate is a good one. Obviously how much sleep you're getting, that's super important. Um, there's also something called heart rate variability, which is a really cool metric to track. I wish actually this would be a whole episode in of itself. Heart rate variability measures the time between your individual heartbeats. And it so happens that when their variability is low, as in when the time between each heartbeat is super regular, you're actually in a hyper aware, you're a heightened awareness state. You are in a more stressful primed state. That's something we would expect to see right before you're about to go for a race that indicates that you are under stress. Higher heart rate variability when there's a kind of a lot of loosey goosey, like it's not, you know, there's from heartbeat to heartbeat, the time in between is, you know, variable, high variability. That indicates that you are, again, in that rest and digest phase, you are relaxed, your body is just chilling, repairing, recovering. You're not under any undue stress. You are in a good, relaxed place. Tracking heart rate variability is another way to do that. And I know that there are a lot of wearables are starting to track heart rate variability now. Um, I think the Aura Ring does. I think Whoop does. I think the Apple Watch might. I have an app on my phone called WellTory, which you can take your heart rate variability using the phone camera. That's just another cool thing. Do you need it? No. Is it interesting? Heck yeah. It's super interesting. So... There are ways for you to kind of get an understanding of what's normal for you and then look at the entirety of your training and how that fits into the things that are happening in your life. And ideally, so the metrics are great. Ideally learning how this is all supposed to feel. When you feel stressed, when you feel like your training is really intense and you can handle it versus when your training is really intense and you can't handle it. All of this stuff matters because becoming a better runner is about becoming more in tune with your body and your brain. Because if you can't rely on yourself, if you can't interpret the signals that your body is sending you, you are not going to be able to become the best runner you can be. It's all about learning how to understand what you are being told by the feedback in your body understanding it properly, and then applying that, executing what you need to do, making decisions on your run, on race day, to do the things you need to become the best runner possible. If you have trouble interpreting what different efforts feel like, you're not going to be very successful on race day because you're not going to understand the difference between running too fast and running at the right intensity level. You're going to blow up before you get to the finish line. Being able to anticipate your body's needs in training and then give your body what you need ahead of time rather than being reactive. It's much, much, much better to understand how you are starting to feel when things become a little bit too much in training versus looking back and saying, I probably shouldn't have, I probably shouldn't have run it that hard. Now I need to take a couple days off because I've dug myself into a hole. All of this is just helping us become more aware of ourselves. Stress exists for all of us. But if we can harness the power of stress to become better runners, I think that that's one of the coolest things you can do. You can take this thing, this evolutionary adaptation, the way that your body responds to certain situations, 
and basically force it to do what you want so you can run the fastest time possible on a race course. Like, how cool is that? Anyways, this has been stress. Again, any one of these, like anything I talk about, um, could have been its own episode in and of itself. Uh, probably may have oversimplified some terms here and there, which unfortunately I have to t- kind of do sometimes in uh, to get my point across. But I hope that you learned something from this episode. I am fascinated by the concept of training stress because it's always about, for I mean, all we, we want to know, how much can I handle? Where's that red line? More, 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 more. Sometimes more is just more. It's not always better. Training smart is the best thing you can do for you as a runner. Don't do what somebody else is doing. Do what you need to do, what works for you and your life, and you're going to be a really successful runner. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find me on Instagram at runningexplained or at my website, runningexplained.co. If you have a question you'd like to have answered, you can submit it in my stories every Monday or email me at elizabeth at runningexplained.co. That's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H at runningexplained.co. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.